We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice with a top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you can join me today here on Ask the Vet on Sirius Stars Channel 109. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus, and I'm your host every month here. I'm a board-certified internist and oncologist at the Animal Medical Center in New York City, where we're broadcasting from today. We're the world's largest not-for-profit animal hospital. Thanks to our partnership with SiriusXM, Ask the Vet is also available as a podcast. You can get it on all major podcast platforms by simply Googling Ask the Vet. At the Animal Medical Center, our job is to keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets. If you have a question about your pet and your pet's health, you can call our toll-free number and leave me a message. I'll answer your question on next month's Ask the Vet program. The number to call is 866-993-8267. And if you don't have a pen or pencil right now to jot down that number, you can certainly get it during one of the breaks because I'll give this number a couple more times during the show. And now for this month's trending animal. It's time for the internet's most talked about animal. An elk in Colorado has been carrying a tire, like a car tire around his neck. Not like a spare tire because he's too fat, but an actual rubber tire. It's been around his neck for two years because wildlife officers have seen him several times, but have not been able to catch the elk. But finally they've caught him and the elk is free of his tire around his neck. Here's the story. While sheep counting in Mount Evans wilderness, a wildlife official spotted a a young bull elk with a tire encircling his neck. And he knew that it would be very hard to track down the elk. And even if he tracked the elk down, it would be very difficult to remove the tire. But over a couple of years, there were sightings of this elk still wearing the tire around his neck. I can't imagine how this elk functioned on a day-to-day basis with a rubber tire around its neck. It was only recently that wildlife officials learned where the elk was and they were close enough to the elk that they could use the tranquilizing gun to knock him out and remove the tire from his neck, all without hurting this big elk who probably weighs a couple thousand pounds. Turns out the tire weighed 35 pounds, 25 pounds of tire, and 10 pounds of junk on the inside of the tire that has collected in there over the couple of years that the elk has worn the tire like a necklace around his neck. So happily, the elk woke up just fine from the tranquilizing dart and has gone back to grazing with his herd and feeling better than ever. Just Google elk with tire around his neck for more information and some amazing photos about the elk and his herd. The month of November brings awareness to three health issues that impact both people and pets, epilepsy, 
diabetes, and the other one is cancer. And today we're going to talk about cancer in pets. And with that, I'm going to introduce my esteemed guest, Dr. Nick Bacon. Dr. Bacon completed a residency in small animal surgery at Cambridge University and a fellowship at the Animal Medical Center at Colorado University and spent nine years as a surgical oncology faculty member at the University of Florida. In 2014, Dr. Bacon was appointed professor, professor of surgical oncology at the University of Surrey School of Veterinary Medicine in Surrey, UK, and is the clinical director of Fitzpatrick Referrals in Oncology and Soft Tissue Surgery. The man gets around. Dr. Bacon is a diplomate of the European and American Colleges of Veterinary Surgeons. He's a past president of the Veterinary Society of Surgical Oncology and an ACVS founding fellow of surgical oncology. He's also a Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons specialist in small animal surgery in oncology and a fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, which this creates a lot of letters behind Dr. Bacon's name. So I want to thank Nick for joining me today on Ask the Vet, and I want to make a disclosure that both Dr. Bacon and I are members of the World Small Animal Veterinary Association's newly formed oncology working group. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Anne. That was a, a, a delightful welcome. Quite embarrassing. And when you say things all at once, <laughs> it makes me sound like I've been really busy, but it seems like one thing just slipped into the next. So uh, thank you for that brief run through history for me. Well, so let's let's go back in history because I'm always interested to know why someone decided to be a veterinarian. Well, that's a great question. And I, um, I don't know that my story is, is that different to most vets. Um, I, you know, of course I like science and of course I like animals. I think any, any vet will say that. But I, I remember when I was younger and I, I had to go and do some work experience, um, as all kids do. And I went to the local vet. I walked down the road and asked to, to you know, hang out for a week. And they said yes. And the first thing I saw, the very first thing I saw, I went through to, to one of the operating theatres. I think it was very much what's this guy made of and will he sink or swim? And I went into a, a surgery on a, a tongue of a dog. And if you bite your tongue, you know how much it bleeds. And so this was a vet, in, you know, in my eyes, this, this grown-up, this adult, taking a scalpel blade to a tongue. And, of course, it bled and bled and bled. And I just thought the whole thing, what I was seeing, was the most fascinating thing. Um, and I thought, that's what I want to do. And I actually, I never then looked for anything else. So maybe I missed, my, maybe I missed a calling somewhere else. I don't know. But I, I love what I do. And I, I, I can trace it back to that sort of light bulb moment a little bit, if I'm honest. And how old were you? About 15 or so, yeah. And my, my parents tell me a story that when I was about 15 and a half, 16, I found this dead squirrel, this grey squirrel on our, our road, and, I, and I, I took it home, and it sounds gruesome, but I, I attached it to a, a piece of wood. It was dead, of course. And, and I just dissected it because I was absolutely fascinated. It's the first animal I'd seen that, you know, we grew up with cats and, and dogs and what have you. And just to look inside a squirrel to understand where are the lungs, where are the heart, how is it different? Um, maybe I should have been a pathologist, Dan. Maybe that was my calling. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that, that was on the kitchen table. I, I don't think they've forgotten that. 
So then how'd you get from squirrels to oncology? Well, I, I, I trained at Cambridge, as you said, and I was um, fortunate enough after I graduated, my, my first job was in mixed practice. I was doing cats and dogs and pigs and sheep and, and you know, the, the whole veterinary experience. But then I went back to Cambridge to do my surgical training. And at the time, Cambridge had the only uh, what's called a linear accelerator. So a big radiation machine they had the only one in Europe at the time. Uh, and so we saw a lot of cancer. We saw a lot of, of oncology cases. And so I saw a lot of cancer cases whilst I was trained to be a surgeon. And I think that was the grounding that I got that I just thought that was normal. I, I hadn't appreciated how much cancer I saw in my residency. And of course, you then leave and you realize, well, that perhaps was much more than most people saw. And so, you know, you gravitate towards things that you enjoy and you gravitate towards things that you feel you can either, you know, be good at or perhaps make better. And that's how I went down that path. So for the listeners out there, Nick is one of just a handful of veterinary surgical oncologists with special training. Um, and he did that at the premier place, which is Colorado State University. And his surgical training in oncology is the same as uh, AMC's Dr. Katie Kennedy, um, who's been on this radio show before uh, with us as well. And so I don't, you know, in case somebody missed Katie being on the show, I'm going to ask the same question that I asked of her. And that is, can you explain to our folks out there in listener land how a surgical oncologist is different than a regular surgeon and maybe is different than what I do, which I'm an oncologist, but I don't do sharp instruments. I tend to give chemotherapy. So how are these, how are all these people different and how do they work together? Well, I think it's important to remember, of course, I trained as a vet first, and then I trained as a surgeon second. And as a surgeon, you, you know, you train to be a very good general surgeon. So you do orthopedics, uh, you do broken bones, you do joints, and then you also do uh, wounds and, and internal uh, abdominal um, surgeries, thoracic surgeries. And in amongst all of that is cancer surgery. So cancer surgery is a subset of general surgery. And that's when as you said, after my surgical training, I went to, to do a fellowship for a year out in Colorado, where not only do you, are you immersed in oncology patients in, from a surgical perspective, but you also begin to understand how they come about. You begin to understand how you diagnose them more effectively, what treatments exist other than just surgery. And of course, that's your discipline. So medical oncology, you learn which tumors might benefit from anti-cancer drugs, before surgery or after surgery. Um, and then you, you begin, to begin to learn an awful lot more about outcome prognosis, which means how well they might do. And so hopefully when you're speaking to the owner, who of course they're scared, they're terrified, they're worried, it's not simply a case of saying, well, we'll cut the tumor out and see how they do. You can begin to, to, to break down their problems and their questions and say, well, this is what will probably happen, and this is what I need to do, and this is what a colleague of mine will then do, and this is what the next three months look like or six months look like. And so we hope as surgical oncologists, we're offering a lot more than simply a scalpel blade and some suture material. We hope it's the beginning of, of understanding what lays ahead of them. And let, let's not forget, surgery cures more cancer 
than anything else. In, in, in humans, it's about 60% of cancers are cured by surgery alone. And that's probably true in animals. We don't know the exact numbers, but certainly there's every reason to think it'd be very similar. And so a lot of patients come either via me or they'll, be, they'll see someone like you, Anne, and, and we'll look at a tumour together and decide what can you do and what can I do and work as a team. And, and I think everybody needs a team on their side. And that's hopefully what we do in the, in the cancer world for pets. I mean, I, I think that, you know, is probably the most important thing that you said is that it, it, it's really a team. And, and in my question, I, I probably left off the, the radiation oncologist as another member of that team, uh, partly because neither you or I do radiation. But, but without that whole team, it's really hard to optimally treat uh, any particular cancer patient. I mean, if it's a little tiny lump or bump, you can probably fix it right up. But, but the complicated cancers need that whole team to weigh in and think about how best uh, to manage that particular patient. So yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it, it is, you know, people talk about it as a, as a war on cancer, but, you know, in a war, you'd have all sorts of you know, you'd have the Army and the Navy and Air Force, et cetera. And, and that's in a, a little bit how you can begin to understand the complexities of a cancer patient is it's not, it's not one solution fits all. Yes. So one of the things that I wrote about in this week's AMC blog, was, which was just posted this morning, is I wrote about uh, myths, uh, cancer myths in pets. And one of the first myths that I think is important to dispel is a biopsy, if, if I agree to a biopsy for my pet, people will often say to me, I don't want a, to have a biopsy, that's going to spread the tumor. So I don't have a lot of um, credence when it comes to talking about biopsies, because I don't actually do any. So I say to the people, no, no, I won't do that. But it, it'd probably be good to hear it from your side. Why should they people agree to have a biopsy if their veterinarian says your pet needs a biopsy? I think I think the the myth or the fear that you know doing a biopsy and a biopsy, by the way, that means a, you know a process of taking a small piece of the tumor to get give it a name, and if you give it a name, you can get a diagnosis, and so then you can have a more accurate treatment plan and and and, and treatment options. So that's what a biopsy is, but fundamentally, it means somehow going into that tumor, into that lump. And people look at it like you're stirring up a hornet's nest. And why would you do that? Because you're just going to make things worse. And that's an understandable fear. But I think if you look at it from a biological perspective, so you hone right down in what's happening inside that lung. Cancers, they need a really good blood supply to survive. They survive on oxygen like, like all, all the rest of us. And cancers are just accumulations of, of countless cells rapidly dividing. And they need this great blood supply. And so they, they hijack the local area where they're growing and they actually make their own blood vessels. So they have all these new blood vessels coming in to feed them oxygen, but that also means they have all these blood vessels leaving and taking that blood back into the body. And most cancers internally are pretty chaotic and cells are breaking off all the time. Cells are dying all the time. And those cells are going into that bloodstream. Now that's probably thousands or millions a day, possibly billions a day, 
all day, every day. As you're looking at a tumour, that's what's happening. As the dog rolls on his back and bumps a tumour, that's what's happening. So that's how cancer spreads. So these cells are leaving and they're going in the bloodstream. They travel somewhere new. Maybe it's the lungs or the liver or who knows where. They leave the blood supply. They start dividing and they try and make all these new blood vessels again, all the time avoiding the immune system. That's a crazy complex pathway for cancer cells to survive. And so the fact is most of them don't. Most of them just can't survive being away from the mothership. They just die at any point in that process. So when I speak to my owners about why we do a biopsy, yes, in theory, if you put something into that tumour, more cells may leave the tumour. But they're leaving as we're looking at it right now. And the benefit of the, the name, the plan, the treatment options, the benefit to, the, to your pet and to you to get that answer far, far outweighs any potential risk of just a few more cells entering the bloodstream. So it's a balance, right? So that the, the knowledge it gives you is so valuable and the risk is incredibly low. And that's how I justify it. Well, and I, I also think that when a pet owner is considering a biopsy on their pet, they need to seek out someone who is trained and routinely does surgery, i.e. you would not come to me for a biopsy because I am poorly trained in getting biopsies and I don't do them very often. So I do the rare skin biopsy and that's kind of about it. And and I do that because it's not in my patient's best interest. Seeing someone like Nick is in your patient's best interest if, if your pet needs surgery or a complicated biopsy. And so I think that that's an important take-home message for our listeners is be sure to choose the veterinarian that your pet sees wisely and someone who does a lot of whatever procedure is being recommended. Um, so there's, there's some sort of list that says that there are over 100 types of animal cancers and that dogs are affected by a lot of different cancer centers, cancers and, and cats too, for that matter. So the second myth I discuss in my blog is that um, pets can't, well, can't have more than one type of cancer. Um, now that defies my day-to-day -day experience, but I wanna know what your experience is. Do you see many pets that have more than one type of cancer, which seems so unfair? It does, and, and first of all, I agree. Um, cats and dogs can have, as a range, a huge number of different cancers, and some cats and dogs even have more than one at the same time. Um, any, any sort of cancer that you might have heard about in people, there's a pretty good chance that we'll see something similar in cats and dogs. And, and, and it, after all, you know, why not? So we're all mammals, we're all made of the same cells, we're all made of tissues, we're all bones and blood and muscles, and we've got lungs and hearts and livers and kidneys. And so cells, they divide as a normal process. That's how we grow. That's how we repair ourselves, injuries. And cells get old. And then amazingly, cells are programmed to, in their DNA to die. That's part of their, their future, if you like. But in cancer, that DNA handbook that somehow gets broken or distorted or mutated in, in, in actuality. And so they keep dividing. 
and the cells never grow old and they never die and they become immortal, essentially. And because we're all made of cells everywhere, we can therefore get cancers everywhere. And so we get, if we get cancers in, in connective tissues, that's the skeleton that holds us up, that's bone and muscle and tendon. We can get cancers there, they're called sarcomas. When we get cancers in internal organs, so that's often glandular tissue, so, so things like liver, intestines, salivary glands, even skin, those are called carcinomas. And the tumors that I, I treat less of, but you do treat more of, are those that develop in the bone marrow or the blood or the immune system. And so you'll have heard of things like lymphoma or, or leukemia, and those we treat with anti-cancer drugs uh, or, or chemotherapy. And so when it comes down to um, the, the raw basics, any cell, no matter what its purpose, what its function is, where it is, it can mutate and become this ever-dividing, immortalized cancer, a lump that we can feel, we can see, we can detect. Um, a, a lump in the liver looks a little bit like liver. Blood cancer is just lots of extra blood cells. Bone cancer looks quite a lot like abnormal bone. So you can have dozens and dozens and dozens of types of cancer in cats and dogs. And that's what we see on a daily basis. And I think that all those different cancers, you know, the, they can crop up at the same time, or sometimes you fix one and another one comes up uh, later on. So I think that that's why we always caution owners um, to pay attention to any lumps and bumps on the outside of their pet, because that's something that they can detect and point out to us um, when it's still often very, very, very treatable. Uh, it's these internal ones that are, are really a challenge to diagnose. So you kind of mentioned it a little bit ago, um, saying that um, a cancer diagnosis in a person or a pet actually is kind of a scary diagnosis. And so I think what you have recently done um, is create a glossary of cancer terms aimed at pet owners. And this is part of, of your work on the um, World Small Animal Veterinary Association Oncology Working Group. And although you spearheaded it, lots of people have made uh, good suggestions on how to make it better. How did you come up with this idea to, to make this glossary? Well, the and as you correctly say, Anne, this is a glossary uh, for owners, for the general public, and it was put together by the, the World Spinal Retina Association Working Group, and it was a, a collaborative group effort. Um, and I think that's really, the, for a start, that's the purpose of the WSAVA. It is there to, to advance health and welfare in, in companion animals, and that normally means cats and dogs. And the oncology working group is there to do exactly that. But as you, as you know, unfortunately, instance of, of cancer in pets is increasing, mostly because pets are living longer because they've got better diets and better preventive health care. And therefore, we see cancer in middle to old age patients. Secondly, oncology, just as in people, is rapidly evolving. And it's really hard for your family veterinarian to keep on top of all that information. And finally, access to vets around the world varies a lot. And that's in terms of access to information in their own language, expertise, their facilities, 
cultural differences, language barriers, finances, etc. And so what we were trying to do, and this is where the glossary came from, was we're trying to chip away at some of those problems to offer A, vets, free access to some of the latest research, up-to-date information on some com common cancers that we see, but really importantly, to try and help the general pet-owning public. Because really, so catching cancers really early uh, improves your options, it improves your outcome. And so we thought that would be a great way to try and help them with earlier detection and earlier awareness. And that's really what the, the glossary is. To, to our knowledge, it's, it's commonly used terms in oncology, but for the first time, we think it's been put together by this global team of specialists who work in oncology. It's specifically written about veterinary oncology. So it's not a human page that you log on to and try and decipher what it means for your cat or your dog. So it's written with pets in mind. It's written with pet owners in mind. And very importantly, it's going to be translated into multiple languages. And so we don't want any subtleties of language or other barriers to be a hurdle to making this situation more difficult for them because we want owners, we want pet family members to be able to speak to their vet about what's going on, to understand what their vet's telling them, to clear some of that crazy fog around the cancer language, to make them feel empowered, to demystify what's happening and just make them feel a bit more confident. So it's, it's a glossary that hopefully people will be able to search on their search engine pretty much from anywhere in the world. And we hope they'll come across it in a language, literally a language they understand. And for, for our listeners out there, we I played with it with my residents in the clinic this morning. And I don't know how Nick did this, but it, it li keeps linking back to each other. So if you look at the, the definition under C for chemotherapy, and then chemotherapy says you need treatment if you have metastasis, and then you click on metastasis, and it takes you to the section of the document that explains what that word is. And the glossary also has a few very well-selected images of different things, radiation therapy machines and pets getting chemotherapy. And so it's a it's a very useful little tool, all in six six typewritten pages. Uh, it's not it's not yet up on the um, oncology working groups website. I expect that it will be within the next couple of weeks, but I think it's going to be a great addition to things that I can send my clients to, to read about the cancer in their pets. And I think it will make people feel a whole lot better actually when they read it. So it's going to be a wonderful resource. The, the oncology working group is an incredible group of people. And between the group members, not me, and their friends, we wrote something else a couple of weeks ago and it got translated into about 10, 12 languages in it, in like an afternoon, I think. All of a sudden there was a link to the version in Arabic and the version in Ukrainian and, and it was Chinese. So really um, a multi-talented group, uh, I think that's gonna create great resources, which if anyone out there is looking for resources, you would wanna go to the website 
www.wsava.org and then just put oncology working group in the search bar and it'll take you to our page. But there's a ton of other good stuff on that website um, related to health and wellness of pets as well. So it's a really, really important thing. Um, can you share with our listeners a little bit about some of the current treatments that you guys are using on the other side of the pond uh, for pets with cancer? Anything different happening over there than happening here? Um, I think broadly speaking, um, the, the types of, of treatment are very similar. The mainstays of treatment, of course, would be surgery, um, anti-cancer drugs, uh, like we talked about, so chemotherapy, and radiation and, and sur surgery is very similar to people you know it's performed under anesthesia there's a short stay afterwards they go home after a night or two typically chemotherapy uh is given by mouth or into a leg vein and that might be once a week or perhaps every three weeks depending on the situation um increasingly we're starting to use what are called interventional techniques so passing catheters or wires down blood vessels under x-ray guidance to, to allow us to deliver uh, the chemotherapy, the anti-cancer drugs, straight to the tumor. And what that means is rather than putting it into a leg vein, the way it works is you put it into a vein, it, 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 it gets carried to the heart, then it goes to the lungs, it goes back to the heart again, and then it goes to the tumor. So by that point, it's actually quite dilute. What we try and do is actually pass a very, very small um, uh, tube, a little cannula, straight to the blood supply, straight to the artery feeding the tumour. So as we inject the chemotherapy, the tumour gets everything all at once in a massive dose. Now, the patient, of course, gets the same amount, but the tumour gets almost all of it, possibly six or eight times the dose it would get otherwise if it was given into a vein. So we're increasingly doing that. And also, um, we are now following on from uh, human practices. We're also what's called um, embolizing tumors. So we're, we're delivering small um, particles that form blood clots that, that, that clot the arteries that go to tumors. And so that way we kill the tumor. Like we said earlier, they need a good blood supply. So if we take out their blood supply, then they die like anything else. And so we can embolize big liver tumors. We can embolize prostate cancer and that sort of thing. And that can all be done through a, a little approach over a blood vessel, perhaps a centimetre, a centimetre or two, that's about an inch for you, Adam, um, in length. Um, and we can do that and the patient can go home the same day. So it's, it's all about, if, if we can, doing more for the patient, but in a way that the patient doesn't even know they're being treated. And that, of course, is the goal. Yep, Something, something's getting chemoembolized here today because we, our IR team was up asking some questions about a chemotherapy drug that the dog had a couple weeks ago, just to be sure that the chemotherapy wasn't going to, the chemo two weeks ago wasn't going to interfere with the embolization process today. And, and I guess, you know, that kind of brings up a point is that interventional team, we have a separate interventional team, but I know that at some places, the surgeons are the interventional team for the oncology group. Just kind of depends on how your hospital is set up. But that's another team member that, um, that we didn't include before 
uh, when we were talking about surgical medical radiation oncology, the interventional team is another really important group to go. So before I, I close off this great interview, I want to know if you have any final closing advice to give to pet owners about cancer in their pets. Um, what I would probably say is just like in people, catching cancer early is, is, is super important. Um, you know, we're, I, I've had pets that have died of cancer um, and I've been exactly uh, in the same situation as to the families I speak to every day. We're all human, we're all busy, um, but don't ignore symptoms that don't get better. So wounds that don't heal, that you don't know where they came from, but they're not getting better. So seeing unexpected blood repeatedly. So, for example, strange nosebleeds that just suddenly happen, or blood in the food bowl that you can't explain, or blood when they're going to the toilet. Uh, worsening vomiting, worsening diarrhea, unexpected weight loss or, or limping that's getting worse. So anything that you simply can't explain that is not getting better, I get them checked out. It's a really good idea. Explain to your veterinarian that you're concerned about cancer. Be super honest with them. You know, they are, that, that right there is the beginning of that team. And if we diagnose, heaven forbid, a cancer, that team will be you, it will be your family vet, it may well be your oncologist or your surgical oncologist. And so start with an open mind, be honest with them, explain your concerns, and then you can start, as always, to break down some of those fears, some of those worries, just by some cold, hard facts and some information. Well, I think that that uses up the time we have with Nick today. He's a busy man and has other stuff that he needs to do. So I want to thank him so much for taking time and rearranging his schedule uh, to join us here on Ask the Vet. And I'm going to look forward to seeing Nick tomorrow morning when we have our oncology working group meeting of the month. Thanks again, Nick, and uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Got a pet health question? Call us toll-free and leave a message so I can answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet show. The phone number, 866-993-8267. And stay tuned for some animal news when we come back from the break. We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Now, more of your pet questions answered on Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars, Channel 109. Let's take a look at some interesting animal news headlines. It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world. If you've ever traveled to Istanbul, Turkey, you couldn't help but notice that the city has lots and lots of stray cats. Estimates are there's as many as 125,000 stray cats in Istanbul. Most residents really appreciate these cats and have a relaxed attitude toward these furry felines. And in fact, a 2016 documentary, cleverly called Cat, was hit was a hit with international audiences and revealed the rather unique relationship between the city's cats and their humans. Now, thanks to one woman's vision and with the mayor's approval, groups of volunteers built elaborate houses for each one of these lucky cats. 
In 39 city districts, each cat house is filled with donated food, toys, cushions, and boxes to help keep the cats safe and happy. And this effort was so successful that other Turkish cities have signed on to have houses built for their local cats as well. Winter is almost upon us, at least here in the Northeast. And if you have outdoor cats that you feed or a feral colony in the neighborhood, just want you to think about maybe building some shelters for those cats. There are lots of very clever ideas about how to build outdoor cat shelters using very common things like plastic tubs and styrofoam. And so if you just simply Google outdoor cat shelters, you'll get a great series of ideas for how you might make houses for outdoor cats this winter. Another story is about um, the challenges we experience if something happens to you and you leave pets behind. How would the people who would take care of your estate make a plan to take care of your animals too? And that's something that we all really should think about before the inevitable happens and we are no longer a part of this earthly world. Um, who would take care of your animals? The Kiplinger newsletter just published an excellent article called Estate Planning for Pets, How to Protect Your Furry Friends. So just Google Kiplinger and Pet Estate Planning for more information. There's also a bit of information on this topic on the Animal Medical Center's website, and you can log into amcny.org and put Estate Planning for Pets in the search bar. Here's another legal topic for the month. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, has signed into law a new bill that aims to make custody disputes over pets in divorce cases a bit more humane. Rather than treating pets in a divorce as the same as a piece of furniture or the kitchen equipment, the law requires judges in divorce proceedings to consider the animal's best interest, kind of like how they think about children in a divorce, and use that information to help them decide which spouse gets custody. This law is already in effect in three states, California, Alaska, and Illinois. And I would say that New York State is proud to join that list of states in taking better care of pets uh, impacted by divorce. And our last story today is a 12-year-old dog named Liza who was rescued from inside a rocky crevice in a Minnesota State Park reserve in Ulster County, where she was trapped for five days. She escaped from her owner during a walk and fell out of sight. It took rescuers several attempts to get Liza, who had fallen about 40 feet, and they used special camera equipment, and ultimately someone from a local cave rescue team descended into the crevice and was able to get Liza into the rescue pack and bring her back up to the surface. She'd been without food and water for five days, but she was not seriously injured. And the moral of the story is, pets should always be on a leash because if Liza had been on a leash, her owner could have brought her back from the precipice of that crevice and she wouldn't have fallen in. So even though it's nice to go hiking and let your dog sniff around in the woods, a leash is always in order. If you want to learn more about Liza's rescue, just Google Liza the dog in the crevice. Do you have a pet health question for us to answer here on Ask the Vet? If you do, leave us a message on our toll-free number and I'll answer your questions next month on Ask the Vet.
The number to call is 866-993-8267. And now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. Our first question today comes from Dawn in Illinois. Hi, my name is Dawn. Uh, I'm from Elmwood Park, Illinois. Um, I have a little four-pound chihuahua, and two weeks ago, she uh, she all of a sudden went blind. Couldn't see. It was it was so weird. Just couldn't see. Um, I rushed her to the emergency hospital. Uh, within the hour, she started to see again, and by morning, she could see again. And then it happened again last weekend. Uh, like five days later, it happened, and she gets her sight back. I have an appointment for her to go to the University of Illinois to a neurologist, but I'm just wondering, what could that be? I've never, I mean, and it was so terrifying. Thank you so much. Bye. So, Dawn, I, I am absolutely certain it's terrifying when all of a sudden your dog who seems normal, it can't see anything and is bumping into everything. Acute blindness has a lot of causes in the dog. Um, one of the things that might happen is if your dog has high blood pressure, that can cause the retinas to detach. And the retina is the seeing part of the eye. So when the retina detaches from the back of the eyeball, then your dog's eye looks normal to you, but the dog can't see. Another thing that can cause acute blindness is inflammation inside the eye, uh, not the red goopy eyes that your dog gets from allergies in the late summer, but this is inflammation inside the eye and all the inflammation blocks uh, the light from getting inside the eye and, and your dog can't see. Sometimes inflammation in the eye results in glaucoma. And you know that glaucoma is a disorder in people that robs them of their vision. And a pet's clever. Pets can hide the fact that they don't see very well for a long time until they appear to be all of a sudden blind. And that's for a couple reasons. One is pets don't really need a lot of visual acuity. They don't drive. They don't read the paper. And so, and, and then they don't talk. So they can't tell you everything looks kind of fuzzy, but they can get around and they look like they can see until that point at which they can't see at all. And then we perceive that they are acutely blind. And then finally, um, Dawn mentioned she's seeing the neurologist at the University of Illinois Veterinary School. Veterinary School is a great place to take this little chihuahua because they not only will have neurologic specialists who can determine if the blindness is a brain problem, but they can also, they probably also have an ophthalmologist who can help figure out if there's a retinal detachment or glaucoma causing the blindness. So the list of things is long, but Dawn's got herself set up for a appointment with just the right people. And I think that um, she's going to get really good care. And I hope that her little Chihuahua's vision uh, can be saved. Our next question came as an email. It is, I'm having about 10 family members over for Thanksgiving in a few weeks. How can I make sure my dog stays safe? So this is not just a one person question. I am certain that there are many people who have this exact same question. So you gotta take your dog's personality into consideration here. So one thing is if your dog is crate trained, maybe just put your dog in the crate. It keeps the dog from being underfoot. Somebody doesn't trip over him. The grandkids don't pull the dog's tail or ears and make everybody upset and the dog is safe. 
But not all dogs like to miss a party. So another solution would be that if you have a dog stroller, you can zip your dog into the stroller and wherever the family is, you just wheel that stroller along. And so the dog doesn't miss the party, but it's inside the stroller, zipped in, can't get out and is totally safe in there and can't get into the trash which is my next recommendation for keeping your pet safe. Be sure that trash can is not available to the dog. It's up on the counter, closed in a closet, and make sure that things like turkey bones are secure and the dog can't get turkey bones, which are terrible for dogs, um, that there's no raisins in the stuffing because raisins can be bad for dogs' kidneys. And if your dog needs a special treat, a little cut up piece of turkey or two, no gravy and no onions, because those are things that can cause pancreatitis and blood problems. And finally, make sure that your pet's microchip is up to date and the collar has your phone number on it. So if when the guests are coming or going, if the pet scoots out, you have a way to get your dog back. And I hope that everybody listening has a wonderful Thanksgiving and enough turkey for leftovers the next day. And when we come back from the break, I'll have the news from the Animal Medical Center. We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Now, more of your pet questions answered on Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Call now with your pet questions on SiriusXM Stars. Well, we had some great listener questions in our last segment. And if you have a pet health question, just call and leave a message on our toll-free number, and I'll answer your question on next month's Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars, channel 109. The number to call to leave that voicemail is 866-993-8267. Did you know that the Animal Medical Center was founded in 1910 as a temporary clinic? And the purpose of that clinic was to provide veterinary care to animals who couldn't afford it. Well, 111 years later, we're still doing the same thing. In 2020 alone, the Animal Medical Center donated $48 million in veterinary care through its charitable programs, which help fund care for pets in need. If you're interested in a list of our charitable programs, you can go to amcny.org and put community funds in the search bar. And if you have a financial need, that will also give you the application process for our various funds. Care is provided for these animals and any animal that comes to the Animal Medical Center by our 120 veterinarians who work together across 20 specialties and services. And it takes all those veterinarians because we manage 155,000 visits each year. That's about 160 pets every single day who come through our front door. Actually, it's our only door. We don't have a back door. The USDAN Institute is AMC's consumer health education arm. And it's a leading online platform to find trusted, timely, relevant pet health information. I hope you'll take a moment to check it out by going to amcny.org and putting USDAN Institute in the search bar. 
Every month, we host virtual pet health events, and every week we produce a newsletter chock full of useful pet health information. And online, we have a pet health library, which is easy to navigate to answer all your questions about pet health and diseases. The information in the pet health library is verified by the veterinary experts at the Animal Medical Center. You can also stream any previous pet health events right from AMC's website. Our most recent event was Red Eyes in Pets, Causes and Treatments by our own ophthalmologist, Dr. Sandra Vanderwart. But there are also seminars on separation anxiety related to the pandemic, our annual celebration of life, a pet memorial event, information on arthritis, and one of my favorite events is a conversation with CBS News correspondent Martha Teichner, who authored a New York Times bestseller about her dogs entitled When Harry Met Minnie, a true love story of love and friendship. And that launched AMC's new Animal Lovers Book Club. We've got a book club coming up. Um, on December 8th, and that will feature Craig Grossi, author of Fred and Craig, a Marine, a stray dog, and how they rescued each other. Another upcoming event next week is Novel Treatments for Bladder and Prostate Cancer by AMC's Dr. Chick Weiss, who is one of those interventional radiologists that we talked about during our interview with Dr. Bacon. Uh, registration for any used an event is free, no charge, but you need, to you need to register so that we can get you into the Zoom link that gets you into our events. To register, simply go to amcny.org and type events in the search bar. I'd like to thank my special guest today, Dr. Nick Bacon from the other side of the pond, and give a special thanks to my listeners and callers for tuning in to today's program. And I want to thank everybody, especially who's downloaded the Ask the Vet podcast. Don't forget, if you have a question for me to answer next month, just dial 866-993-8267 and leave your question so that I can play it next month on this program. Check us out on social media, Facebook, it's the Animal Medical Center, Twitter and Instagram, AMCNY. And I'll be back next month for Ask the Vet on Sirius XM Stars, Channel 109. Thank you and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, the crying old time.